This is the Unique Smiles Podcast, a podcast featuring stories of people with facial paralysis and the challenges they've faced, with your host, Brian April. Hey everybody, it's Brian April uh, here with the Unique Smiles Podcast, and um, before we uh, get going today, I just want to remind you, feel free to subscribe, uh, leave comments, feedbacks, reviews, anything we can do to, to try to make it uh, better. Also want to send a, a quick shout out to our uh, our sponsors today at the Facial Paralysis and Bell's Palsy Foundation. They're a nonprofit organization uh, who are dedicated to raising awareness of facial paralysis concerns within the medical community and society at large. If you need support, they have support group meetings over there. They have events and all sorts of things over there. So just check them out. It's a facialparalysisfoundation.org. That's www.facialparalysisfoundation.org. And while we're at it, I'd send one more shout out to my good friends at Rise Physical Therapy here in San Diego. Rise Physical Therapy has multiple locations throughout San Diego and is the only clinic that treats patients one-on-one with a provider for the whole session. Their individualized approach to therapy helps patients of all ages and diagnoses. They also have access to other facilities and wellness modalities like whole body electric cryotherapy that no other facility has. So check them out, uh, risephysicaltherapy.com, www.riseephysicaltherapy.com, risephysicaltherapy.com. Joining us today is Matthew Jaffe. He is the uh, vice president of the Mobius Syndrome Foundation. And Matthew, thank thank you so much for taking uh, some time today and joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. We were talking a little bit beforehand, and I just said it's something that I don't know a lot of people. My travels and and working with uh, support groups and foundations, I've only come across a couple of people who have Mobius. So, for the people who don't know, can you please explain what uh, Mobius is? Mobius syndrome is a congenital cranial facial condition that primarily affects the sixth and seventh cranial facial nerves. There can be other nerve involvement depending upon the profile of the syndrome in a given individual. But some of the more uh, characteristic issues are people with Mobius syndrome uh, cannot smile the way people that don't have Mobius syndrome smile. Okay, so it really uh, can result in uh, a kind of paralysis of the craniofacial nerves. Uh, it's hard, as I said, you can't smile. Some people have, like myself, visual problems. Other people have auditory problems. Uh, it is congenital. It is not something that necessarily progresses. Uh, and you cannot catch it from someone else. So if the seventh nerve is involved, uh, smiling and frowning, puckering the lips, or raising the eyebrows or being able to close your eyelids becomes challenging. And so for me, for example, uh, I had to have surgery in order to force my eyes to blink because I was headed towards dry eye syndrome and they were concerned about that. Wow. Uh, I cannot smile. Uh, I cannot uh, raise my eyebrows and, you know, show emotions or anything like that through my face, primarily. Um, I had years of speech therapy. 
to learn how to speak as normally as possible, given what I couldn't do with my my uh, mouth, the way most people learn to speak as children. Wow, that, that's a, a really interesting condition. And you said that is uh, primarily uh, from uh, birth, is when it appears? Yes, yes. In my case, for example, it was not until I was 18 months of age did my parents start to notice something was different. If people want uh, information, uh, I just want to give your website out a couple times. One, it's mobiussyndrome.org, and that's M-O-E-B-I-U-S-S-Y-N-D-R-O-M-E.org, mobiussyndrome.org. So growing up, uh, you said you, it happened at about 18 months. What was that like growing up as a child dealing with Mobius? Did you have any issues with bullying? Oh, yes. I mean, as a child in elementary school, people were concerned that I was sick. Not disabled, but sick. And that what I had was contagious, so people were afraid to come too close to me or allowed me to get too close to them. Uh, I was constantly teased and stared at and poked at, not physically, but pointed at. And... um, made to feel very self-conscious about my appearance. And so um, elementary school was difficult, uh, trying to fit in. And sadly, it gets worse as one gets older because once you um, enter junior high, in my case, you know, the teen years are tough. People start to join cliques and people start to explore their sexuality and relationships and it was a very, very dark time for me in terms of having uh, a place to fit in. I always fit in more with teachers than I would with my peers and so I've always felt more comfortable around adults when I was younger. And then when I got to high school, I often used to refer to high school as the black hole. It was just abysmal. Everybody was in a clique, everybody was dating, and I had no friends and no direction, and it was tough. Junior high to uh, high school, it was really difficult on a socialization level. You know, I primarily focused on my, my education as a way of coping. Did your parents, especially, you know, elementary, junior high, did they talk to the teachers beforehand or did they do anything to help? What kind of support did your parents give you throughout that time? I was lucky. I had great parents. My father was more on the quieter side, but he did a lot of exploration to see what medicine could offer me in terms of assistance uh, for my condition. And my mom would go meet with the principal and uh, have a say in who my teachers were and uh, made sure that everybody knew something about who I was in advance and that there was an open door for communication should there need to be. And I remember once in junior high, and my mother told me she would she would go to the parent teachers conference, and she'd go up to them and go, "Hi, I'm Matthew's mother. Got any questions?" <laughs> Just like that. 
know, Lanaka was a very strong force and presence, and she spoke uh, directly to people. And so I had a lot of protection and support. They were both concerned that I succeed in the world. They both refused to shelter me from the world. They took me to cultural events. They took me to restaurants. They made sure that I was in the world and that people saw me and that people learned to deal with me. And when they didn't, she would hold them accountable. Did that help you on your end, just kind of feeling like, yes, I belong in this world and I'm just like everybody else and people can and should accept me? Um, yes, because I realized when I was in high school um, and people were trying to, uh, and even in junior high, people were trying to get me to use drugs because that's what people did. You know, I was a product growing up in the 60s, and so that's what kids did. And I wasn't interested. And my response would always be that I'm going to get my highs in life the natural way. I don't want to do it with a chemical. And I think some of my friends felt uncomfortable with my stance because I think they thought if anybody had a right to, it would be me. And yet I didn't have any interest in it. And that's when I realized that I was my own person, that I had a strong sense of self. I was not easily influenced. And um, it was the beginning of the time where I developed what I sort of refer to as a, my mantra for life, which was, you know, this is my life. I'm going to lead it on my terms to its fullest. If you don't agree, that's okay, but you better stay the hell out of my way. I was going to live my life the best I knew how. And I got that indirectly from the way in which my parents brought me up. That's a great mantra, and that, it sounds like your parents were really influential in that, that aspect. They were. They were. And I was aware of the fact that that was not a given, because I had heard and seen on my own parents that struggled to be parenting their child of a difference. Some would abandon their children, which I just couldn't understand at all. And so I knew that I was lucky to have my parents who believed in me and, you know, always talked straight to me and said, you know, what you have isn't going to kill you. It's not going to get worse. Whatever it is now is what it is later. And so I was always ready for life because that's how they wanted me to go through life. That said, there were times that they sort of encouraged me to sort of not react to people. And so for a long period of time, I would turn the other cheek, as they say. And then as I got older and I got into therapy and I looked at my life firsthand, I realized, well, that's one approach, it's not the only approach. And I was able then to start to develop what I refer to as a palette of emotions and ways to express them. And so I no longer turn the other cheek as a knee-jerk response. And when something is not right in the world, I'm not afraid to say it out loud. One of the things I know a lot of people struggle with who have facial paralysis or, uh, or, or difference, how do you 
you handle, how do you handle people meeting people for the first time or in public? Well, it depends. For example, if I'm meeting, uh, meeting someone who's a friend of someone I already know, they often will tell them about me ahead of time. Show me a picture, of, you know, of me to them. So I don't have to deal with their initial reaction. Which, quite honestly, at this point in my life, I'm going to be 65 in a couple of months. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to subject myself to that. I know it's out there. I know it's real. I'm not in denial. But I'd rather they work that out ahead of time, if they can. When I can't, and I'm meeting someone for the first time, like I did today, I met a colleague introduced by someone who already knows me. I have no idea what, if anything, she said to her. But my tendency is to go go to my fallback, which is a sense of humor. I am a class clown. I am a jokester. I have a very quick wit and think very quickly on my feet. And I will use that to break the ice. And it works. I'm sure you know that as a stand-up mm -hmm. comic, that that is a powerful tool that sometimes is overlooked. And so I've often said to people when I, I do a lot of teaching in my in my work, and I have said to people in an audience, I go, look, I know I look on, and I know you're sitting there thinking, hey, he looks on, and you know what? I'm okay with that. And so by doing that, I'm breaking the ice. I'm letting them know that I'm not running out the door. And at the same time, I think I'm neutralizing whatever is going on on the other side. That's what I've found as well and with a lot of people is if you're okay with it, then that just sets the tone and then they go, oh, okay, they're okay, so I can be okay with it and I can relax. Right, right. And, you know, if they have questions, I'm, I'm an educator by profession and a therapist by profession, and so I believe in asking whatever you want to ask. I have the right to say I'm not going to answer it, but please ask whatever comes to mind. And the only way people are going to learn not to feel uncomfortable around people with craniofacial conditions or differences is to be able to ask and get answers to their questions or fears or concerns so that it's no longer... A big deal. Many years ago, uh, a, a college friend, we were sitting up at night talking in, I think it was my room, I can't remember, I think so. And he said, you know, he, he had a confession. And I said, okay, what's the confession? I had no idea where he was headed. And he said to me, when I first met you, I was uncomfortable. He said that after a while, I stopped focusing on what you look like and focus more on who you are as a person. And I thought that was probably one of the most courageous things anybody's ever done in front of me. And I told himself. And I've used that as an example for myself to tell people that I am aware that I look funny. So don't be afraid. To think it, to feel it, say it. When you don't say it, I get worried. Right. That's when people just try to pass it off and you can you tell know. it's on their mind. As you were going through that, that's, that's really good advice, by the way, for people is to, to have something like that where you just say, hey, I know this. It's okay. Yeah. Thank you. 
when you were after school and you're you're heading out trying to get a job, you say you're an educator and a therapist, I believe you said. Mm-hmm. Did you have any issues with getting employment? Some people feel like they see somebody whose face is, uh, is different and they automatically assume that they're slow or they're stupid. Did you have any of that plaguing you as you were going out into the, the work world? I went on a trip, 90 minutes on the bus for a job interview in another state nearby. And I sat in the waiting area for the assistant principal. And he came out of his office and I stood up and walked towards him. And he hadn't lifted his head at that point. And he lifted his head and as we met, his face went ashen white. And he offered me probably the clanniest, limpest handshake I've ever experienced in my life. And at that moment, I knew that this entire trip was a waste of time, and I was never going to get this job, and that he was never going to be able to get past what he saw. And in fact, it was a very quick, perfunctory 20-minute interview, and I never heard from them again. I went on another trip, and the person that interviewed me loved me, but ultimately couldn't convince the school board to hire me, so they said. To be honest, my first job, and I've only had two. I've been working for over 40 years, but only in two places. I tend to stick around if I like a place. (laughs) You want that gold watch, huh? (laughs) No, actually, I don't want the gold watch. No. No, I don't want the gold watch, but if I like where I am and I can grow and stimulate myself professionally, I'm not a believer in, you know, jumping from lily pad to lily pad every two to three years. It's just not who I am. Not to say that for those that do that, it's not beneficial, but it's not who I am. No, I agree. I was but, just being silly there. So, you know. Uh, so how... I'm sorry to, to, to cut you out. How do you... Yeah, go ahead. How do you start to deal with that emotionally, you know, when you, you're you're dealing with these reactions from people? And how do you start to just kind of accept and get over it and not let it get to you? What are some of the things that worked for you to kind of start getting past that and go on to, to be a success? Well, let me, let me give you a, a compare and contrast to answer that. My first job, ultimately, I got because my father's boss was friends with a director of an institute, was friends with one of the people in the institute who worked in a place that was looking for a staff member. And I got a call, I needed needed a phone call, I needed an appointment, I went down, I got interviewed, I got hired. So in all honesty, my first job was based on the bottom line was that I got it because I knew somebody. Indirectly, three times removed. I stayed at that job 16 and a half years, and towards the end, I started going out on job interviews and found myself very self-confident. I went on a job interview that was grant-sponsored, that was down the street from where I was working, and nailed it. And I rejected them because the money wasn't significantly more than what I was currently making, which was not a grant position. And so I said, thanks, but no thanks. So I came back to that and said, wow, people want you. And then ultimately when I left, I went on a a one interview. I went on an interview where I'm currently working, 
and I'm started in '94. So I'm in my 24th year in September, the year 25. But I remember I went into the interview, and it was a group interview, like nine people, something I'm not used to. And I basically said, this is who I am. If you like what you see, great. If you don't, have a nice day. And I got hired. And because I got hired, I knew why I got hired, because I walked in self-confident, knowledgeable about the field, and I knew how to ask questions. I even said to them, does anybody have any questions about my disability? Please feel free to ask. Of course, no one would ask, because that would be a violation of the law, and they were afraid I'd turn around and use it against them. But I was very sincere. That was not entrapment. I really meant it. But um, I felt very comfortable with who I was when I interviewed Finding that belief in yourself and your skills and your knowledge and your experience and yeah, yeah. Which... And by then I had I had had some therapy and I had gotten older. I was mature, and so all of those things helped me to be able to look in the mirror and see a different person. Would you recommend therapy to to people who maybe are struggling or have it have Mobius and are just trying to find their way? Absolutely. I am a big believer that therapy is an opportunity to learn about yourself. It is not indicative of any illness necessarily or that anyone is crazy. I think that's often perpetuated in movies, and I feel that good counseling or therapy can really help someone develop insights into their life and their actions and who they are as a person. I absolutely agree with you. It certainly helped me. I had individual, I had group, and then I went, and, and then the next level turned out to be joining a cranial facial support group, is which there, is how I found out about Mobius Syndrome Foundation. I was just about to ask you, like, how I, did that come into your to your life? Well, I'll tell you. At the age of forty and a half, I first met someone else with Mobius Syndrome. My mom had encouraged me to fill out on some sort of a form and send it off to a group on a list of cranial facial centers around the country. So I finally gave in and did it. Okay, Ma, I did it. Happy, you know? <laughs> and unbeknownst to me, the one that was literally 10 blocks south of where I live put my, my notice in their newsletter. Did they offer to send it to me? No. And I come home one day, and there's a message on the phone machine from a screaming 19-year-old girl talking about a thousand words a minute, telling me that she's got obvious, she wants to talk to me, that there's a meeting in upstate New York, and I'm going, will you come? It'd be great to meet each other. I mean, it just was endless. So I went, and I met the local New York chapter of the Mobius Syndrome activist, I guess. And I went to the very first conference ever that the Mobius Syndrome Foundation has had back in 90. I went to every single conference. I'm an original, as they say. And I remember very distinctly walking into the ballroom of the Los Angeles Hotel and seeing 103 people standing there who were either parent, grandparent, adult or a child with Mobius. Parents 
not having it necessarily. The grandparents don't have it. And I knew in an instant, first of all, I felt the, I felt the floor move. I, felt, I had like an earthquake feeling. And that my life was completely changed because I had found a community that I didn't have before. Of people you didn't have to explain yourself to who on an intuitive, non-verbal level got it. Joining the Lodia Center Foundation and joining a New York-based support group, which led me to do something I never, ever thought I would do, and that is act and do television, live television and radio. It was a whole new world for me. And not only was it fascinating, I found out I really liked it. So I went from this person who was not really choose to be in the public eye because of all the jeering and teasing and such, to someone who puts themselves out there now. The first play I ever did on opening night, I walked on stage, one person, and I walked off stage, a whole different person. There was no going back. Oh, I understand exactly what you're saying. It's uh, once once you experience that, it's life changing. It is. It's it's just incredible, and I still act, and I still write poetry. It's just fantastic to have a chance to be in that world, uh, given that there's such a preoccupation with beauty whether it's in the print media or on the film media or even in the theater. Everyone has to look pretty. I yet I've gotten to taste it over and over again and it's a great feeling. That's fantastic. And Matthew, we, we have a few minutes uh, before we uh, we wrap up. Uh, where can people find out some more information about the, the Mobius Syndrome uh, Foundation? I know there's MobiusSyndrome.org. What are some of the other things uh, that they do? Are there any support groups that you know of that uh, uh, online? Well, or if you go to our website, there are support groups. As I said, regionally, people get together. Um, it's difficult to maintain an ongoing support group. There are only a, a handful of centers nationally that are spread out around the country who focus on the comprehensive treatment inside and out, physically, emotionally, uh, for people with craniofacial conditions. There's one in Tennessee, there's one here in New York, actually two, and elsewhere. But there are these regional conferences, and people will call each other once they know that they're not the only one living in their state with this situation, mm-hmm. and they'll support each other that way or through email. Um, and they can come to the conference, and it's posted on our website now. Registration is already going on. It's in July, and it's in a hotel in Tampa, and there's a wide range of activities for kids of all ages to do. Parents can come and uh, have their child see a consultant, whether it's for speech and language therapy or for possible smile surgery or to be part of a number of ongoing research projects, because we have a very, very strong 
scientific advisory board, and one of our missions in the foundation is to promote research. We want to find out genetically the marker and the gene for Lopez syndrome. That is a very strong push. There are studies that are going on. I've done them myself. And it's simply voluntary. And the majority of them are non-invasive. And uh, it's an opportunity for parents to meet other parents, find out who's in their backyard that didn't know it, and to meet experts who may not live in their neighborhood but can tell them where they might find help because they themselves have a network. So it's a great opportunity to not feel as if you're alone and for you to need others and to learn a tremendous amount about what can be done to live with Mobius syndrome. Key word is living with it. When I was born, they didn't have any way of telling my parents what I had. They gave me tests and tests, and they finally said, well, he tested negative for everything. So by default, he must have Mobius syndrome. Today, a child could be diagnosed inside of seven days. Wow. So things have radically changed, and for the better. That, and that's Mobius. You go to the website, there's a tremendous amount of information. You can write to the foundation. People will respond to you, and you will no longer feel like you're out there on your own. And that's MobiusSyndrome.org. And uh, I guess lastly, any final words that you want to say or what would you like to say to somebody who's out there and kind of suffering or maybe a parent who's listening about dealing with a life with Mobius? I feel one of the most important things that a parent can do for their child is to believe in them, to encourage them, to challenge them, and what I call to help them find their own voice and to be proud of who they are with what they have and to focus on what they have and not what they don't have. I think that's something that parents can can work on for their child. It's not easy. I've had my moments of darkness, not going to lie, and everybody does. But if they can remember that their child is looking at them for guidance, and if we can then turn around and help them discover who they are, to me, that's the greatest gift Well, that's fantastic advice, and I thank you so much for coming on today. Again, Matthew Jaffe, uh, the Vice President of the Mobius Syndrome Foundation. Uh, Their website is mobiussyndrome.org, and they have all sorts of information and events coming on their website, so feel free to check that out. And again, thank you, Matthew, for spending some time with us and enlightening us, and uh, hope to talk to you really soon. Thank you, Brian. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Likewise. Take care.